You guys are always asking me, Liz, what the heck do you do on your long runs? And Kate has recently converted me to Audible. With Audible, I'm able to combine my two favorite pastimes, running and learning. If that isn't the most Alyssa thing, I don't know what is. I know, right? So Audible has helped carry me many, many miles with audiobooks and podcasts. And the best thing about it is I'm able to download them directly to my phone and listen to them while I'm offline, running through the woods in the middle of nowhere with no cell service. And since I have a reading list approximately as high as I am tall, there's no other way I'd be able to consume so much with how busy I am. That's exactly why I love Audible. I've been a member for years now because I honestly cannot read enough books if I have to sit down to read them all. Audible has been a godsend because I can listen to audiobooks while I'm cooking, working out, or walking my pup Rocky, but my favorite way to use Audible is as I'm going to sleep, and you guys, I recently found out that Audible has bedtime stories narrated by none other than Nick Jonas and Tony Shalhoub, who you may know as the character Monk. Their voices are like so perfectly sultry and like they really guide you off to sleep. It's incredible. So every month, members get one credit to pick any title, no matter the cost, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, and access to daily news digest and guided meditation programs, dare I say, by no other than the Pete Diddy himself. If that doesn't scream littlest meditation, I don't know what does. The Audible app is available on all smartphones and tablets, and you can download titles to listen offline anywhere and anytime. You can start listening today with a 30-day trial. You get one title plus two Audible originals for free when you visit audibletrial.com slash messymiddle. That's audibletrial.com slash M-E-S-S-Y-M-I-D-D-L-E. Are you confused about what supplements you should actually be taking? In a world full of juice cleanses, detox teas, fancy promises, it can really be hard to trust anything. But high-quality supplements, when dosed appropriately, can actually help support your fitness goals. And that's why I use Legion. I've been using Legion supplements since the beginning of this year, and after years of never really fully committing to one single brand due to lack of transparency in their labeling, unnecessary fluff, or just reporting things as blends and not knowing what's actually my product, I finally found a solid science-based product line that fits my supplementing needs. Legion's products are 100% naturally sweetened, and my favorite part, they are fully transparent in their labeling, and they use dosages that are actually backed with what the science says you need to be effective and support your fitness goals. And not the least amount you can get away with, and not just labeling as blends, but fully transparently telling you what's in your product and why they dosed it that way. And this is huge, because it lets you know exactly what you're taking and if it's actually going to be effective, and then you can know what's going into your body. My personal favorites are their cinnamon cereal whey. Yes, it tastes as good as it sounds. The mocha cappuccino plant protein. Pulse, their pre-workout, which comes in non-stimulant or caffeinated stimulant based. And Recharge, the recovery blend, which also gives me the creatine I need to move weights well in the gym. Legion offers 100% money back guaranteed if you're not happy with their products. And you can save 20% off your first order today with our code MESSYMIDDLE at checkout. That's M-E-S-S-Y. M-I-D-D-L-E at checkout to save 20% today. This is Alyssa Lenick of Littlest Fitness. And I'm Kate, otherwise known as Coach Carmichael. We are PhD students, endurance athletes who lift, outdoors enthusiasts, and entrepreneurs. We believe the narrative of the fitness and wellness industry is often far too extreme. So forget about the black and white messages that you've heard. On this podcast, we believe that life is best lived in the messy middle. Welcome back to Coach Carmichael Chats. Today, we are talking about anxiety. And right from the get-go, I want you to know that I have been there. And I still go there. I've spent entire 
days in bed, avoiding life because my anxiety was unbearable. And if you feel that way too, if your anxiety has anxiety, I want you to know that I am with you and that this message is for everyone, myself included. I want to spend a lot of today's chat going over the science behind anxiety, the cycles that we create from a neurological perspective, as well as what it means when we say that my anxiety has anxiety or I'm anxious about being anxious because that's a real thing. It's called anxiety sensitivity, and I want to talk about how that shows up and some of the best treatments for that. But I also need to start with a giant disclaimer, because I am a firm believer that if you are really struggling with anxiety, that your best course of action is to go and talk to a mental health professional. So you can listen to this podcast and you're free to take away anything that you think will help you. But at the end of the day, your best bet is going to be somebody who can help you give you what we call the pills and skills to tackle this in a personal way. I want to begin by reminding you that anxiety is an adaptive response. When we were cavemen living out in the wild, we needed to respond to threats in our environment. It was really important that we were able to notice when things might be awry or predict that an uncertain circumstance could end badly for us. We need anxiety to survive. And that hasn't changed, even though we live in the modern world and a lot of us have luxuries that make us feel safer. Anxiety is a signal that tells us that we perceive a threat. Anxiety is not our problem. The problem is when we have pervasive and heightened reactions to adverse events that lead to excessive anticipatory responses when facing uncertainty in the future. And I know that probably sounded like a bunch of mumbo jumbo, so let me say it another way. When we evaluate a situation as bad, we say, oh my gosh, this thing I just experienced was terrible. And we have pervasive and heightened reactions. So we have some long lasting, extreme negative feelings after that event. Our brain takes a mental note and it says, oh my gosh, Kate, remember at that time that you freaked out because of that bad thing that happened? Well, I've noticed a similar situation that could arise, and so it's now time to freak out in anticipation of it. We're going to worry about it before we even get there, because your body is trying to prepare you for that quote-unquote terrible situation. But the problem is, when a lot of us experience anxiety, we don't say, hmm, hey, why am I having this reaction? What is it that I'm you know, needing to prepare for? Instead, a lot of us get anxiety about having anxiety. And we say, oh my gosh, I'm going through it again. I'm feeling it again. This is a bad feeling. I shouldn't have it. And instead of seeking out information that would maybe make us feel better or at least be able to armor ourselves up against this threat, we avoid, we numb we watch hours of Netflix because that way we don't have to think about the scary thing. 
let me walk you through a scientific model of what I'm talking about. And this is from a paper written in 2013 by authors Group and Nitschke. And this model is called the uncertainty and anticipation model of anxiety. The way that this paper defines anxiety is increased threat expectancy, which is what we just talked about, right? And there's a few things that can lead to increased threat expectancy or anxiety. They are disrupted expected value calculation, deficient safety learning, and increased threat attention. In plain language, that means that when we have an expectation that differs from the actual result of what happens, that can lead to increased anxiety, right? So if we anticipate that something is going to be fine, and then all of a sudden this event is like really catastrophic and horrible for us, our brain is going to be like, whoa, okay, we got that one wrong. So we are definitely going to need to make sure that we evaluate this as threatening in the future. Deficient safety learning occurs when we don't do the work to look for signs that everything is actually okay or that the threat is not exactly what we perceive or it's not as big as we perceive. And finally, increased threat attention just means that we become hyper-focused on what we are worrying about. So when all of these things or some of these things contribute to our increased threat expectancy or anxiety, it can lead to further avoidance and higher reactivity to uncertainty, and that's going to promote, again, more anxiety. So essentially, if we avoid the situation and we don't evaluate it, we are less likely to notice signs of safety, more likely to be overreactive and to anticipate and evaluate a similar situation as threatening in the future. All of that to say, anxiety becomes a cycle that we learn. Here's an example from the paper of this model in action. Pete is home alone one night. He hears rustling in the bushes and loud banging sounds outside of his house. Pete immediately feels uncertain about whether these noises are benign, like curious raccoons, or threatening, like a burglar. An adaptive response to this uncertainty begins with a rational assessment of the probability of threat. Few burglaries occur in this neighborhood, and similar noises have never turned out to be dangerous before. Pete turns down the television to give more attention to what may be outside, but this extra attention is balanced by giving attention to cues that indicate safety as well. Because Pete's security system is silent and the windows and doors are locked, he has reliable signs that nobody has entered his house. Nevertheless, Pete explores the situation to reduce nagging questions. He heads downstairs sees that the trash is strewn about the garbage cans, and surmises that the likely culprit was a raccoon. Despite some unresolved certainty, Pete can calm his racing heart and fall asleep knowing that all signs point to safety. Next door lives Paul. He's a chronic warrior diagnosed with generalized anxiety disorder. He hears the same noises and experiences similar feelings of uncertainty. Instead of objectively weighing the likelihood of alternative outcomes, Paul immediately imagines burglars entering his home. Uncontrollable worries and cascading what-if thoughts course through his head. 
he generates an increasingly elaborate scenarios of what evils may befall him. He becomes increasingly attuned to the movement in the branches or the creak in the floorboards of his old house. Owing to Paul's exclusive attention towards potential threat, he does not notice that his security system is silent. Concerned for his safety, Paul locks his bedroom door instead of investigating. Having avoided the situation, Paul is left with greater uncertainty than Pete. He has even less information about the sources of the noises. He tries to sleep, but his racing heart and sweaty palms keep him from relaxing. Not having learned that the situation was safe, Paul will be more likely to assume the worst the next time he hears a noise in the night. The first example demonstrates an adaptive anxiety process. Pete finds himself in an uncertain situation, assesses the probability of a threat, pays attention to his surroundings, and finds signs of safety. He explores the situation and is able to relax. In the second example, Paul finds himself in the exact same situation as Pete, but he responds differently. He worries about the uncertainty, and he does not rationally assess the probability of a negative outcome. Paul also avoids exploring the situation, leaving him with uncertainty and anxiety. The problem is every time Paul, or you, avoids responding to uncertainty, the neural pathways that promote the maladaptive or excessive and inappropriate anxiety responses are strengthened. The same way you learn to play an instrument through practice, you learn to be highly anxious with practice. And I think this has a lot to do with our anxiety sensitivity, which is being anxious about our anxiety. And this can show up in three main ways, physical, cognitive, or social. When it comes to physical anxiety sensitivity, we fear those symptoms that accompany anxiety and we believe that they pose a threat to our well-being. This could mean fearing your rapid heart rate, the shallowness or quickness of your breath. This shows up most commonly in panic disorder, but you can certainly experience physical anxiety sensitivity even if you don't experience panic attacks. But this could look like worrying that you are on the verge of experiencing a heart attack or something like that. Or it could be as mild as just believing that the physical sensations that you are feeling are wrong and bad. When it comes to physical anxiety sensitivity, the best practices for relief are going to be counseling, exposure therapy, pharmacotherapy, and exercise has shown to be beneficial. This is because when you're able to exercise, you're producing a lot of these same physical sensations that occur with anxiety. You increase your heart rate. Your breathing may become really heavy really quickly. And so just experiencing these symptoms in an environment that is not threatening can be beneficial. When it comes to cognitive, we have this fear that there is something wrong when we experience racing thoughts brain fog, trouble concentrating. We worry that our thoughts reflect a mental illness. And this is really common in generalized anxiety disorder and depression. 
And again, you don't need to have a disorder to have cognitive anxiety sensitivity. This could look like when you're faced with an uncertain situation and you begin to worry, instead of continuing to worry about that thing that you were worrying about before, you're now thinking, oh my God, why am I freaking out again? What is wrong with me? Why can't I think about something else? Just like physical anxiety sensitivity, some of the best practices for getting help for cognitive anxiety sensitivity are going to be counseling, exposure therapy, and pharmacotherapy. What also might be helpful is engaging in mindfulness practices that emphasize non-judgment of thoughts. We, of course, talked about this a lot on our last Coach Carmichael chat, mindfulness and meditation. So you can check that out if you think that would benefit some cognitive anxiety sensitivity you might have. And the last category is social anxiety sensitivity, which is the fear of how your anxiety and observable symptoms may be perceived by others. So this could be thoughts like, what if they notice me sweating? Do they see me blushing? Can they tell how anxious I am? Do they notice that I'm trembling? And of course, this is going to be most common in social anxiety disorder. Best practices again, counseling, exposure therapy, pharmacotherapy. For social anxiety and social anxiety sensitivity, what can be helpful are also mindfulness practices. And specifically, we want to emphasize reframing thoughts and replacing less ideal coping strategies like reaching for alcohol in social situations. And I wanted to speak on anxiety sensitivity specifically because I want to emphasize that anxiety is an adaptive response. And it really only becomes this pervasive problem for us when we either evaluate our anxiety as bad and we create fear around having anxiety, or when we do things like Paul, when we don't rationally evaluate the probability of a negative circumstance occurring, when we don't look for signs of safety and we hyper-focus on what we believe the problem to be. And just knowing these things doesn't mean that you're going to walk away from this chat and suddenly be cured of anxiety. It's an ongoing process to not only be aware of this pattern, but to actually break the cycle. And again, I am such a huge advocate for counseling and therapy and getting the help that you need through mental health professionals. I will fully disclose that I have been to counseling before, and I have currently just found a new therapist. So I hope this episode serves to increase your understanding of what the experience of anxiety results from, and some of the ways that we ourselves are contributing to the evaluation of anxiety as this negative outcome that you know only increases our pervasive heightened response and reaction to when we perceive a threat. And I hope that this helps you ask better questions when you are feeling anxiety. You know, is there something I'm doing that isn't in line with my values? Do I feel threatened that I'm going to lose something important to me? Is there a bullshit belief coming up for me right now that I'm not enough or that I'm not capable of what's in front of me? When it comes to anxiety, I think it's so important to ask ourselves why it's coming up for us 
and lean into what our anxiety is trying to tell us. Because if we leave it uninvestigated, we leave ourselves open to experiencing unnecessary worry in the future. So next time you experience anxiety, I encourage you to try to come from a place of love and curiosity to understand rather than a place of repression and avoidance. And maybe we can find the answer. That's all I have for you today. As always, I would love to make this conversation a two-way street. If you head over to my Instagram at Coach Carmichael, you can find the latest Coach Carmichael chat post and leave me a comment. Remember, I want you to live well, demand better, and stay messy.